1984, Orwell added, people are controlled by inflicting pain. In Brave New World, they're controlled by inflicting pleasure. And it's that that led us ineluctably to the election of Donald Trump. This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. To support the work we do for as little as a buck a month, or to sign up as a member and get commercial-free versions of every episode, plus members-only bonus content, find us on Patreon or visit the Contributes tab at bestofleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Bradcast, The Breach, Counterspin, The Majority Report, On the Media, Primary Concerns, and Propaganda. Award-winning political cartoonist and columnist Tom Tolles wrote last week in The Washington Post, Every minute President Trump is in office, more damage is done to the United States. We are supposed to be comforted by the institutional checks and balances. We are supposed to derive solace from the fact that there will be future elections. We're supposed to be heartened by the knowledge that what he does can be undone. But, Tom, uh, Tom Tolles says, maybe not so much. The GOP Trump project is simultaneously jackhammering the foundation stones beneath the entire American project. They are pulverizing basic respect for facts and scientific methodology, along with fundamental deference to truth. They are mixing the dust into a muddy slurry. And this is their idea of the swamp they have come to drain away. It is not particular facts that they are out to destroy. It is the whole system of facts. And once that is gone, it is a long, long time before you get it back. It's not that they don't know. Ignorance is, in theory, anyway, correctable. It's that they don't want to know, and they don't want you to know either. But it goes beyond even that, Tolls writes. It is a policy of destroying the very ideas that facts are knowable or that facts exist independently from assertion. This disease has been incubating for some time, but now we have an administration prepared to go all in. Lies are the carbon dioxide we are pumping into our political system now, and the damage is cumulative. My guest today is award-winning journalist Brooke Benkowski, managing editor of the storied critical thinking promotion and urban legend debunking site, Snopes.com. Brooke's here to talk to us today about fake news in the era of Trump. Both actual fake news, like you might get from your unfriendly local Russian bot, and false allegations of fake news, such as you find at a Trump rally. Brooke, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Fake news has become Donald Trump's catchphrase, but he didn't coin that term, did he? No, no, not at all. It's been floating around for some time, although it's kind of been weaponized in the past several months. 
It's weird because just before the election, fake news was kind of a mainstream reality-based community kind of buzzword. We were complaining about things like Pizzagate, and then somehow we've made this huge leap to it being Donald Trump's calling card. How did that happen? It just came with the territory. I think, you know, when you're extremely thin-skinned and you don't really dabble in the business of truth, you end up calling everything fake news. And so I think that this is kind of a way to fling poo and fling mud at people, cloud the issues, muddy the waters, and just kind of confuse everything so that nobody really knows what's going on. Can you give us a 30,000-foot overview of the fake news landscape? Yeah, I mean, the best way to look at it is that this is propaganda. This is exactly how propaganda gains a foothold and how it works and its pattern. If you study the uh, patterns of how propaganda is used and weaponized, it starts out with flooding techniques so that people have so much going on that they're confused all the time. They're emotionally overwrought. They don't know what's real and what's not. And finally, they're just reacting to whatever they hear. I mean, to me, it just sounds like it should all be called propaganda at this point or disinformation. Take your pick. It's such a complicated ecosystem, though, because you've got things like sort of obvious fakeries. You've got the conspiratorial uh, blogosphere, you know, Alex Jones and Infowars and that kind of stuff. You've got the Russian bots. How does this all fit together into one incoherent whole? I, I don't think it does. I think incoherence is one of the end goals here. You know, they, they talk about chaos agents. When you, when you read Intel stuff, there's always something talking about chaos agents to sort of uh, throw this, these wrenches of uncertainty into any one narrative. And I think that the incoherence is part of this message. Can you talk a little bit more about what role, if any, Russia might be having in the rise of fake news? Yeah. Um, so Russia has been extremely good since at least the 1960s at weaponizing disinformation and misinformation. And they employ it with a lot of precision and a lot of expertise behind it. And with the advent of modern technology and big data, it's become that much easier to weaponize disinformation. And when I say disinfo, I mean something truthful with a lie mixed in that makes the lie that much more powerful. And that is a key force within propaganda. Uh, So Russia has been doing this, like I said, for some time. And uh, it's been kind of pointing these, you know, disinformation cannons all over the place, uh, including at the United States for many years. But it's never really been that effective until now. And I think that the difference is the key difference is that the American press has been basically cut off at the knees. You know, there's Mm -hmm. the newsrooms that I used to work in that had 50 people now have five people. And there's only so much you can do. And when you create this sort of informational vacuum misinformation always comes in to fill the void or disinformation or outright propaganda. So I think that they're doing what they always do and it's caught on this time around. And I think it's being aided and abetted by a lot of unscrupulous people who stand to personally benefit within the United States. And as somebody who's now been on the receiving end of a lot of this stuff, I can tell you that it is extremely overwhelming and uncomfortable, but also it's it, it can't last. It's doomed to fail. It's It's the sort of thing that always rocks the boat in the short term and creates enormous problems that then the more sober people afterwards have to clean up for years afterwards. Why do you think it's doomed to fail? I mean, it seems like it could be tipping our society into a kind of closed authoritarian type structure where disinformation is simply the norm. Um, It does seem that way. And that's actually, I think, part of the propaganda process. Although I 
have to confess that at the moment, seeing a way out is really hard. But if you look at authoritarian regimes, they never really last. They're usually inherently well, not usually, they're always inherently unstable because they're authoritarian regimes. So they, they can't usually last. They don't have staying power. And I think that the world is now progressing beyond time in which authoritarian regimes can actually really work long term. I mean, you can't really stop the free flow of information. You can't stop people from knowing at least not in the United States, from, from knowing what's going on in the world around them for very long. I mean, the truth always comes out. Now, I, I understand that this sounds contradictory because you have authoritarian regimes like North Korea, but I have to point out that North Korea manages by virtue of being a relatively very small country with a small population, and they have effectively cut off information coming into the country, as well as information going out of the country. And so that's why it's sustained itself for as long as it has. But even that is an inherently unstable regime. It's kind of the tribute that Vice pays to virtue fake news, because they're conceding in a way that we can't stop the flow of information. So the best they can do is to pollute the stream so that nothing is worth anything informationally. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that says a lot to me about the power of uh, media that's strong and vibrant and the power of journalism that has all of the all of what it needs in order to practice journalism. It's an extremely powerful force for democracy and for personal freedom. And so that's another reason I'm predicting that it, it, it can't last. The New York Times' Jim Rutenberg is alarmed by right-wing websites with no commitment to truth. He's not alone there, but as a mainstream reporter, he'd like to be able to balance those out with some respectable right-wing journalists. And he seems to think he's found one in Weekly Standard editor-in-chief Stephen Hayes. Hayes, Rutenberg wrote on March 26th, is following in the tradition of William F. Buckley, who, quote, designed National Review to win the larger argument through logic and superior command of the subject, as his biographer, Sam Tannenhaus, a former writer for the New York Times, told me last week, through facts. And it inspired successive generations of conservative journalists to get in the game, too. One of them was Stephen F. Hayes, close quote. Unfortunately, as Rutenberg tells it, not everyone in right journalism shares Hayes' self-proclaimed commitment to basing arguments on facts, logic, and reason. Quote, the movement he joined had succeeded in breaking the mainstream news media's informational hegemony, something the mainstream media had a hand in too, he said. But as it evolved, grew, and splintered, something else broke, any universal sense of truth. That's a problem for our democracy, he told me last week. There are right-leaning voters who don't believe what they're getting from the networks and the left-leaning cable outlets, 
and therefore may be open to false or unsubstantiated content that provides affirmation at the expense of true information, he said, close quote. Well, aside from these false framing notions that mainstream media once reflected a universal sense of truth and that corporate media don't themselves provide affirmation of neoliberal economic dogma, for instance, at the expense of true information, this relay race of responsible right-wingers passing along the torch of truth-committed journalism falls down at both ends. For one thing, William F. Buckley was kind of a monster, a supporter of eugenics, Jim Crow, apartheid, fascism in the form of Spain's Francisco Franco, McCarthyism, nuclear war against China and Vietnam, and the tattooing of people with HIV. It's not clear that he arrived at these positions through logic and superior command of the subject. And then, at least as problematic, is offering Stephen Hayes as a model of fact-based journalism. Hayes is the reporter who famously used the Weekly Standard as a platform for recycled claims of a connection between Saddam Hussein's Iraq and al-Qaeda. He went on to publish a book on the claim called The Connection, How Al-Qaeda's Collaboration with Saddam Hussein Has Endangered America. The Times' review of Hayes' book said that Hayes cannot bear to let his pet theory fall by the wayside, whether it is borne out by the facts or not. The Weekly Standard, lest we forget, as Rutenberg would appear to have, was second to none in using shoddy reporting to sell a war that left hundreds of thousands of people dead, with rhetoric often indistinguishable from that of the administration downplaying war crimes committed by U.S. troops and labeling anti-war activists and legislators as anti-American. So it's odd to see a profile of Hayes in the New York Times bearing the headline, The Weekly Standards Arsenal to Fight Falsehoods, Facts, Logic, and Reason. One can understand why Rutenberg, unnerved by the likes of Breitbart and Infowars, would be looking for signs of hope on the right. But expecting a journalist and a magazine that led perhaps the single most disastrous journalistic scam of the 21st century to restore honesty to conservative media is not so much hopeful as delusional. If you search for tenderness, it isn't hard to find. You can have the love you need to If you look for truthfulness, you might just as well be blind. It always seems to be so hard to give honesty. Just to ask you this last question. Uh-huh. Has this plan, I mean, uh, you, you have Buchanan uh, there who is sort of uh, drawing up a, a basically a, a, a formula to uh, how to approach a whole range of public functions. Has hmm. this operational plan that has been at the very least largely 
funded, if not organized, by uh, uh, the Kochs, and particularly Charles Koch, uh, and, you know, and friends. How much of it is, I mean, how, how narrow and defined is the plan, or is there a sort of a, sort of a venture, uh, a venture fund quality of this? Like, we, we don't know where the sweet spot is, so we're gonna fund 50 yeah. of these, and three will come out, and, and, you know, we're gonna let a yeah, thousand. Yeah, 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 What, what, what that is, is so- that is so astute, Sam. Um, I, I, I think it's kind of both. Um, and I've actually read every every right every bit of Charles Koch's writing that I can get my hands on. Um, and most of his writing is about his business strategy. But I think if you read about his business strategy, you understand also how he's going to work politically because right. you know he sees them as the same kind of uh, enterprise. And so he talks about hiring above all based on values. And when he says that, I think what he's talking, particularly in these political operations is people who share these libertarian commitments and then they train them in Buchanan style ideas about you know how government works and what to do about it but then Charles Koch is very much a kind of venture capitalist and so his ideas here exactly what you just said you know uh, Institute for Justice you want to litigate to bring back the pre-new deal constitution here's a seed fund to get you started you know go do what you can do so Clint Bollock takes the money and gets some courses to the cases to the Supreme Court for school vouchers and other things things and does pretty well. So Koch keeps investing. Now Clint Bullock is on the Arizona Supreme Court, put there by a Tea Party governor. Um, so, uh, you know, there are some other efforts that haven't worked as well. You know, but, but, but also, like most of us are led to think that all of these things are separate. But, you know, Breitbart is connected to the Koch operation. You know, Breitbart will, will defame people and destroy their reputations based on dishonest editing of, of videos as they did to Acorn, as they did to Shirley Sherrod, you know, as they're doing now to other people. But that's part of it, too. But then it gives Coke plausible deniability to say, oh, that's not me. That's right. this other operation. I didn't know they were doing that. But you are absolutely right. And he, you know, in documents that I have that I cite in the book, Coke says kind of exactly what you're saying, that he is just happy to provide seed money for all these different enterprises, um, whether it's the state policy network or the, the constitutional litigators or, you know, the grassroots operations they're funding now to try to, you know, reclaim their name in black communities. You know, all these things. He'll give some money for it, and he likes people to respond to incentives, you know? So if people can show him they're getting results, they'll get more money. And if they don't get results, you know, then they'll, they'll get pushed aside or, you know, shunted off to more uh, less, less shrewd and calculating donors. But it's exactly what you say, that it's, it's kind of a combination of, you know, wanting that ideological commitment. And commitment to the program and the plan is kind of a core thing. But then it's like, yeah, go go invest in something. Go do something new. They even have a motion pictures institute now that's producing, you know, trying to produce freedom-minded films and training young interns. And, you know, I mean, there's just a ton of money flowing. And anybody who has a good idea for how to advance their cause and shows that they'll be disciplined and toe the line and work with the program they'll get money from this donor network. They just said at this latest um, convention, they had 400 people attending and they're supposed to give uh, $100,000 each. So this is the kind of, um, you know, I'm sorry, 100,000 per year they have to pledge to get into the Coke donor network. So you can imagine what a cash flow this creates for, as you said, you know, um, continuing to support, you know, of course, the, the, the groups that have proved themselves, like the Cato Institute um, uh, and Heritage Foundation it's, uh, and Grover Norquist, but also funding all these little, you know, we could say startup operations right. on the right. 
Well, yeah. uh, whatever it takes to uh, make sure yep. that children don't have health care. Uh, sky's the limit. Yes, touche. Gonna, uh, touche. Uh, Nancy McLean. I shouldn't laugh. I shouldn't laugh. Well, you know, a viewer, can I just say, somebody on another radio show actually wrote to me and said, you know, that about, like, my wry laughter at some of these things. But frankly, and it, it's because I don't want to cry. Yes. No, I think... <laughs> so... Uh, I think uh, I am gobsmacked. You just described basically our elevator pitch for this show. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I would like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and get everything you can get used from a place like Craigslist. You will save yourself a boatload of money and reduce the endless flow of new stuff getting shipped across the world because that seems more convenient than meeting a neighbor. Failing that, try a locally owned small business. Failing that, if you're left with no choice other than to buy something from a place like Amazon, then at least there's a way you can do it and support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, Amazon.ca, or Amazon.co.uk from the banner at bestofleft.com and shop as you normally would. Better yet, click through on the link to your country's Amazon store only once and then bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whether that be rejecting consumption altogether, consuming sustainably, or at least consuming in a subversive way. You conclude this book by saying activism is not enough. You have to travel out of your moral comfort zone into the world of others. And after your book has referenced all these cultural touchstones, Orwell, Hannah Arendt, John Adams, Ursula Gwynn, Walter Lippmann, Huxley's Brave New World, the final cultural reference in the book is Gulliver's Travels by Jonathan Swift. Why Gulliver's Travels and that we are the irrational Yahoo people from that story not the uh, the logical horses of that story <laughs> governed by reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was it was trying to understand the value in what we do in our world creation that we can't live as the horses did the hermonyms or whatever their names were these gloriously rational horses that had really no familial feeling no religion no art no storytelling no vanity they were pure rationality and it's a cold cold life they never reflected on their lives when it was time to die they trotted off to die and that was that uh, humans don't live that way. They have to weave the seen and the known with the unseen and the unknown to create a more complete world. And uh, the yahoos were the most primal, lizard-brained, id, Cro-Magnon type uh, expression of that. They were nothing but impulse. 
Uh, it was like the whole human be- being divided in two parts. And then there was a third inhabitant of the realms that Gulliver traveled that I'd completely forgotten about, which were the Laputans. And these were philosophers of science who lived on an island floating in the sky, and literally they can't see straight. One eye is focused up, one eye is focused down. They had to hire people to gently strike the mouth of the man who was supposed to speak and the ear of the one who was supposed to listen and to hold on to his master so that he didn't just walk into the street or fall down a hole because they were so detached from the world in their speculations. And they didn't know how to work in the world at all. They built lopsided homes, clothes that didn't make sense. They were so oblivious to the results and so smugly insured of their own superiority that they were both quite brilliant and quite stupid. And that's what happens when you focus on abstraction and systems and don't continually refresh your view of the world that you actually live in, which means stepping out of the unseen creation into what you can see and not just what you can see around you, but what you with the help of our endless media, our boundless ability to peer elsewhere, read into the minds of other people who are so utterly foreign to you. And that's ultimately in this rumination that your book is on unshared realities that strikes many pessimistic notes. Mm -hmm. You conclude that there is a path, maybe not to agreement, but at least to comprehension. And so the last line of your book is, if we really look, we might see that other reality reflected in that person's eyes, and therein lies the beginning of the end of our reality problem. So you're not such a pessimistic fatalist after all. Hey, I mean, you have a choice. You can give up or you can keep striving. I mean, all of the people saying we must resist must understand that there's an external resistance But there's also a resistance one can wage against one's own smug surety, our own tunnel vision. Not that it even has to change you, but so that you really know what you're fighting against and how best to know what you're fighting for. I'd known Bannon since 2011, mm-hmm. and I, I kind of talk about how I met him in the, in the preface of the book. Um, and he's such a wild and manic and interesting character that that I, as a, as a magazine feature writer, sort of decided, well, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna write about this guy at some point. Mm-hmm. I just need to find the news peg, and I found the news peg in 2015 because Bannon came up with what I thought was a really interesting and intriguing way to hack the mainstream media. This mm-hmm. is, I think, this is what you're talking about. Yeah. Um, and he and he understood. Okay, so his critique in the '90s was that conservatives got trapped in a bubble. They didn't reach mainstream voters. Uh, their their message didn't penetrate the mainstream media. So how do you fix that? And Bannon's 
innovation was, well, look, it's facts and wild rumors and Vince Foster murder theories are not going to convince anybody who isn't already convinced. So what we need to do is drill down on facts, on documentable facts that are damning to Hillary Clinton. So Bannon believes in this thing, he calls it periodicity, where you don't try and tell a whole story, it's too much to swallow, you focus in on one narrow thing. Josh Marshall, I think both of our old former boss would would claim ownership of this concept. But would I, he really? I think he, uh, he he at least was early to this idea that, that news actually works in iterative fashion and, yeah. that, and, that, and that stories evolve increment by increment rather than having splash here and splash there. Well, Bannon, I mean, Bannon's thing was really just like, I don't like, think we, they get we, along. We need no, to, no, no, no. You know what? I, I think they, I tried to broker a, a breakfast between the two. Oh, really? During the, yeah, during the, it's pretty early in the campaign when think, Bannon took over and he was kind of high on his own, on his own. <laughs> You know, supply. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and was feeling very powerful. But, but so Bannon's idea basically to hack the mainstream media was, look, let's focus on one period of Hillary Clinton's life that we think will be damning. He picked the time after she left the Senate because it really hadn't gotten the coverage that the 90s stuff had. And he focused on the Clinton Foundation mm-hmm. and he focused on all the money coming in from foreign governments, from foreign donors of, uh, you know, questionable character and intent. And they did all sorts of kind of, you know, forensic accounting and deep web scraping. Reporting. Re- real reporting. Yeah. yeah, yeah, real reporting at this uh, think tank called the Government Accountability Institute down in Tallahassee, Florida, that is legally a nonprofit research en- entity, but it's paid for. It's funded by the Mercer family, the right wing billionaires mm-hmm. who pay for Breitbart News and the other stuff. And so they were able over two years to kind of come up with all this data. And it became the basis of the best selling book, Clinton Cash, which came out on the eve of uh, I think it came out in like May 2015, right before Clinton was announcing her candidacy. Mm-hmm. But what they did, this was Bannon's innovation, which was which was so interesting and why I wrote about him, is they didn't take this stuff and run it on Breitbart News. They purposely didn't run it in Breitbart News. And what they did is they went to the New York Times, uh, to Joe Becker and some other reporters and said, hey, we have this reporting that we've ginned up that shows that the foundation was taking money from this like, I can't remember what he was, like a Ukrainian – no, like a, a yeah, this is Juster, a, like a Kazakh, yeah. Frank Juzer, yeah, like a Kazakhstani uranium miner or whatever, uh, who was somehow in league with with Putin and the Russians and had given millions and millions and millions of dollars to the Clinton Foundation and hadn't disclosed it as as the Clintons had pr- promised they would. And so, lo and behold, even before the book comes out, suddenly one day there's a front page story. Huge spread above the fold in the New York Times, laying out this damning relationship. And there's this odd little kind of phrase about. You know, 10 paragraphs into the piece saying, you know, some of this reporting is based on the forthcoming book, Clinton Cash. And that was an example of how Bannon kind of hacked his way into the New York Times. Uh, and, and when the book came out, uh, you know, Bannon's contention was, look, I know you guys are all lefties, you investigative reporters, but I also know that you really care about stories and facts. And if we hand you a pile of facts, you will do your due diligence, chase these stories and and take them like a baton and keep reporting mm-hmm. them. And that's exactly what happened with the Clinton cash book. Suddenly, these stories are appearing everywhere and tarnishing Clinton's image right at the moment that she's announcing her, her, her presidential campaign. So well, here's what's fascinating to me about that. And, and it ties back to the way I feel like Bannon kind of represents a, a quantum leap in American conservatives kind of embracing anti-enlightenment, anti-democratic norms, values, whatever, is that in, in doing this, right, he's ditching the pretension that conservative media is necessary to balance out liberal media, right? His whole point is that non-conservatives can be influenced on this fact-based channel, 
and that the conservative media's purpose is to keep the right much more propagandized, right? Exactly. And you know who had the best way of describing this was David Brock, who I interviewed back in 2015 and was really the only person I could find on the left who took seriously um, the threat that Bannon posed and the threat that this Clinton Cash book posed. Because as Brock put it to me, you know, getting these negative stories into the New York Times instead of, you know, some London tabloid or the New York Post or whatever that can be ignored by the mainstream – Getting it into the New York Times is like a virus infecting a host body. If you get that in there, all of, of Clinton's potential voters are going to read it. All the other news media reporters are going to read it, and it's going to um, it's going to tarnish their impression of Hillary Clinton. And so, what do you wind up with? You wind up with a an unenthusiastic Democratic voting base as it pertains to Clinton because they see all these unseemly connections and the secret speeches and then the email thing comes out. I mean, we can talk later about whether that was exaggerated or not. But the point was um, they, 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 they tarnished Clinton's image in the eyes of these voters who then, um, through a, a stroke of dumb luck, had an alternative to choose from. Bernie Sanders, who was pure and crusading mm-hmm. and kind of put her – uh, ethical and moral baggage into such sharp relief. And that is exactly what Bannon was trying to do. And it's something that Clinton never really recovered from. But I guess if, if you imagine the, the reporting that made the foundation for Clinton Cash, say, or the story that ran in the New York Times, um, if you, if you imagine that transposed onto Breitbart.com, like the story would look right. different. It would be presented different. It would, it would probably be much more embellished, right? Like, no, nobody, nobody in the mainstream would care, right? Because right, well, we're conditioned to ignore, or it would just take a stroke of dumb luck for it to get picked up by the right, you know, like maybe a Fox News report, and then and then somebody at at a different outlet starts looking at it and says, "Okay, there's something here. It's not quite as like Ben Ben Shapiro. You quote him in in your book, like, and I, you know, he he's nobody's Tribune for like liberal." <laughs> liberal norms, but he even says that Bannon, for the purposes of Breitbart, isn't interested. And I think he calls it like factual truth. Right. He, he's, he's interested he's about narrative, narrative truth, truth, not right? factual right? truth. Right. Yeah. And, and, and so B- Bannon's confession is we keep our guys like slavering with, with propaganda, red meat. We don't even really care if our facts are correct. And then we use fact based persuasion techniques, uh, through this cutout GAI to, persuade liberals and you know non-conservative yeah. voters and even had a slogan for it it was called um anchor left pivot right yeah. this is this a slogan what that means is you anchor these anti-clinton stories on the quote-unquote left he's referring to the mainstream mm-hmm. media you know the times the post bloomberg news what have you and then pivot right and so none of this stuff ever made it into breitbart news directly but what breitbart would do instead was when the times came out with a big story Breitbart would write like five stories off the Times story saying, look, look, even the liberal New York Times right, says that Hillary is, you know, and sort of whip it up into this kind of rolling narrative of Clinton perfidy and, and evil. And that would keep the base riled up. And it would also lend, I think, credence and validity to a lot of the charges they were making because they weren't just making the charges based on their own reporting or their own, you know, conspiracy theories or contentions. They could point to the New York Times. Right. And so I like the sort of process he uses, the like the the, the strategic process, which, you know, isn't much different than if you planted this idea of how to uh, attack Clinton in Karl Rove's head. I bet you he could execute 
the strategy just as well. But there's like much more clarity of, of thought about like just what is it that the conservative media is? Is it really like the liberal media only with a, with the right wing tilt or is it like a is it a propaganda organ? Yeah, that, that it, he's like Karl Rove, I don't think would ever think to admit that we have this edifice like Fox and Breitbart in order to basically feed a mix of misinformation and, and hype to to angry voters and that is a mobilizing tool. Not only does Bannon have no illusions about mm-hmm. that, but he he thinks that it is useful and vital. I mean, he is, I mean, he'll he'll say this, like this, this sounds like I'm insulting him and saying it as if it's a pejorative. He is a propagandist. Yeah. Um, and he studies propagandist and he understands the power that these kind of messages have i think that's exactly what he's trying to do and it's, it's what he tried to do it's, it's what he did do uh when he took over the trump campaign well and it's not just him he surrounds himself with people who like consciously or not are really you know very like in their bones they're propagandists like his patron Robert Mercer, you point out, has a consultancy that advises foreign governments and militaries on influencing elections and public opinion using the tools of psychological warfare. Right? Yeah. Like this is not, you know, this is not nor like how the, the the Democratic Party or even most Republican candidates think about how to persuade or or mobilize voters is not with psychological warfare but like you take the real world as it is and you spin it as needed to right and there's an actual difference between the two kinds of electioneering right there is and i think he recognizes it but again i I still think the most important insight he had for, for was the importance of facts as the basis of these attacks, once those facts, have been, o- once those facts have been published, the propaganda machine can flip on and you can, you can, you know, but the, spin them the way you want. But, the, but, but the, but the, but the facts serve as the basis less for, you know, sure, they, they end up being the seeds of, of propaganda, but, but the purpose of them is, is to get a really, you know, a real, fact-based message out to people who don't read Breitbart, right? Right, to disillusion potential Clinton voters, liberals, Democrats, independents. So, I mean, I'm, I'm curious if you think that there's a way for Democrats to, to do a kind of reverse hack of of conservative media. Like, the reason, you know... That's an it, interesting thought. I mean, like, the, the reason... Um, I don't even want to use the term vulnerable, but the reason the New York Times you know, liberals who read the Clinton cash story and were concerned about it, et cetera, were vulnerable to this hack is because you present them with some sort of fact-based, uh, you know, research dossier and they'll, yeah. and they'll run with it. Um, well, well, they'll, they'll check it out and the, write their own. Sorry, by the way, yeah, yeah, I want to, I want to make clear that the, the times did everything absolutely right. Sure, sure. Like if somebody brings you facts about an important presidential candidate, you're obligated to go out and, and, and report yeah. it. And they did, and they did it well. I don't, I don't mean yeah, run okay. with it, just like post it on the, the I'm New just York covering Times my website. ass. Yeah. Here. Yeah. No, run with yeah. it as in like check it out, do due diligence yeah, and then, yeah. but, but treat it like it's a serious thing. I, I have asked, I think I asked Brian Fallon, he was on the show, like, is there a way to penetrate the filter bubble where conservatives get their information? And I, I feel like it's a much harder, uh, to mix metaphors, egg to, egg to crack, because if you tried to get this kind of damning information, you know, I've been writing about how Donald Trump is, is proving his, his disloyalty. The fact that, you know, his, his claim to, to being the super loyalist is belied by his treatment of Jeff Sessions. And if you tried to get Breitbart or something or Fox News to run a story about how, hey, maybe he's really not as loyal to his tribe as he, they would just never run it. Right. right? It's an alternate. Re- I did a, it's, this isn't really in the book. It was sort of book promo, but I did a big time Sunday essay, like, I don't know, a week ago that, that essentially made this exact mm-hmm. point that, that what, what I call in the book, the conservative underworld, you know, what was previously thought to be 
the you know, unrespectable, you know, Breitbart News, Fringe Talk Radio, blogs, stuff like Drudge Report has really swallowed up the more traditional, r- respectable uh, right-leaning outlets like National Review, like Fox News. Uh, and, and now it is that underworld that kind of dominates the Republican mind collectively, its voters, its, its, its Fox News viewers. And, you know, if you watch Fox, I use, I use Lou Dobbs as, as an example. I mean, it's like tapping into an alternate reality. You know, Dobbs just graded Trump's first six months and gave him an A plus. And, <laughs> you know, how do you, how do you find common cause? I mean, how do you, how do you penetrate that bubble? I don't think you do. I, I, I think, I think Bannon's, I think Bannon's mission would be much harder in reverse. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that the problem was, always uh, do, doing what Bannon did in in hacking uh, mainstream media and liberal media or whatever uh, was always going to be tougher just because that that kind of environment, Lou Dobbs, for instance, like predates Bannon in some sense. Um, but I just think that what Bannon is doing in some sense is making more mainstream conservatives feel more comfortable with this notion of exactly. uh, of propaganda being a valid way to conduct politics. But here's the thing I'm not clear on. How aware do you think those conservatives are that it's propaganda and that they're being propagandized? I, I think they just accept this as... You're talking the, about the, the viewers? Yeah. 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 I'm talking about more like the like practitioners. Officials. Yeah, practitioners of politics, you know? Yeah, I, you know... I don't. I'm sure some of them have the self awareness to draw that distinction, but more and more, when I talk to Republican elected officials, um, on the record, but also just kind of privately and off the record, there isn't a lot of indication I get that they're in on the job. As always, I would like to remind you that this show runs on recurring donations from listeners just like you. Listeners like Paul H. and Sachivan, both professional protester members. So huge thanks to them for going above and beyond. But I want to thank every member and every donor who helps keep this show going. Now, we are set up on Patreon where you can make monthly donations starting as low as a buck a month. Membership levels are a little higher, but they include a separate members podcast feed. And that includes ad-free versions of every episode, plus members-only bonus content. Like when we uh, diagnosed the generational and cultural divide in feminism. I mean, the next step is solving it. I think we're almost there. And uh, using the presidential campaign logos to explain the difference between how the parties operate. Think about it. Make America Great Again hats are a one-size-fits-all, take-it-or-leave-it message compared with Hillary's H with an arrow logo that was specifically literally designed to be malleable and customized for each constituency. Kind of starts to tell you something, right? Plus, that's where you're going to hear about everything first, like our announcement of our new private social network just for listeners to be able to join up and chat with us and each other. Speaking of which, I recommend that you join up with us there using the link in the show notes. It'll get you right in. So to support our work and get instant access to all of that, either find Best of Left on Patreon or visit the Contribute tab at bestofleft.com. Thanks so much for your support. But for the spring print issue of Bitch Magazine, 
Jen Posner wrote a feature article about how specifically NBC and reality TV show The Apprentice helped shape the public image of Trump into someone who could conceivably run for president. It's called All in the Family, NBC and the Manufacturing of Donald Trump. If you're not one of the millions of people who has ever actually watched The Apprentice, just as a refresher, it's this show. Andy, you're just being pounded on. You're being out-debated. I just don't want somebody running one of my companies that's going to get beaten up so badly, you're fired. Okay, so Jen is the founder of the group Women in Media and News and is the author of Reality Bites Back, which it certainly did in this case. And she's currently working on a book about media's complicity in Trump's rise to power. Amusingly, Ivanka Trump this morning on CBS told Gail King that she did not know what it means to be complicit. And so then Miriam Webster's tweeted at her the definition of complicity. There are going to be a lot of ways, a lot of really weird ways history looks back on this time period, right? It's often a little hard to parse out what's important and what's not when you're right in the middle of something. So I asked Jen how historians in 50 years would look back on the role that The Apprentice played in his campaign. It's going to be increasingly clear, I hope, that um, that NBC and The Apprentice really played a massive role in normalizing and um, and cre- not just normalizing, but um, but creating a false sense of authority and a false sense of competence for Donald Trump for more than a decade before which he was. Uh, I should say, without which he would never have been able to run in the first place. Um, what I mean by that, uh, The Apprentice, which is a show that uh, pretended for 11 years or so, um, nearly every week, uh, that Donald Trump held the keys to the American dream in his hands, that he was the epitome of success, of authority, of um, saying, telling it like it is, but in a way that needs to happen so that um, people can make money and do good deals and get ahead. Um, and all of those, all of those ways that authority was bestowed on Trump by NBC and by Mark Burnett, the producer of The Apprentice, um, alongside Donald Trump, who was also an executive producer of The Apprentice, creating his own narrative and learning through Mark Burnett how to create his own narrative, um, that authority, uh, the image of authority, I should say, uh, was specifically crafted in a manipulative and false manner to uh, to confuse and uh, and mislead viewers into believing this was the real Donald Trump, not the guy who was multiply bankrupt and sued for fraud numerous times. The whole idea of The Apprentice is that Donald Trump is a super successful business owner who knows everything about running a successful enterprise. The contestants on the show compete for the chance just to work with him. Given the facts of reality, you could just as easily have made a show where Donald Trump is some kind of symbol of what not to do in business. A guy who inherited a bunch of money from his family, filed for bankruptcy multiple times, and has been sued repeatedly for fraud. But that's not the narrative The Apprentice was selling. You know, they took 
a couple of minutes of footage every week of Donald Trump and, and left hours of footage of him off to the side. Anybody can be made to seem authoritative and uh, intelligent and competent if you just take, you cherry pick just a couple of minutes. And then if you leave all of his racist ranting and his uh, pussy grabbing off camera, so that, of course, they didn't want us to see that. During the presidential campaign, a producer from The Apprentice's first season, Bill Pruitt, wrote a letter in Vanity Fair about how The Apprentice misled Americans about who Trump is. He wrote, we were, quote, entertaining. And the story about Donald Trump and his stature fell into some bizarre public record as, quote, truth. Now that the lines of fiction and reality have blurred to the horrifying extent that they have, those involved in the media must have their day of reckoning about how complicit the media and social media outlets have been in getting us to where we are now. Wow. Reality TV, more than any other genre, manipulates the audience because with with sitcoms, with dramas, we understand innately that even with the most realistic, gritty, uh, gritty uh, narrative, there are actors reading scripts written by writers, filmed by producers, and that this is a, a fictional process and we get to be entertained by it. Maybe we get to learn something by it if it's one of those sort of socially responsible types of programming efforts. But we understand that this isn't the truth. It's a maybe at best, it's a reflection of true attitudes and values people might have experiences, right, that, uh, that actors can tap into. But with reality television, this is a genre that bills itself as the truth. Most viewers don't know that for an hour, an average hour of The Apprentice, or even an average hour of The Bachelor, or any, you know, Real Housewife, whatever favorite show you have, um, you're seeing less than 1% of what went on. They usually will have filmed more than 100 hours of tape. Um, And then if you take out commercials, then that's basically 46 minutes or so of content. So you're seeing less than 1% of all of the drama, all of the uh, sort of intrigue behind the scenes. So if you think you know who Donald Trump is because you watched him for 11 years, that's a, a reasonable assumption for you to make as a viewer if you believe the basic premise of reality TV. So what about all that footage that was left on the cutting room floor? After the Access Hollywood grab him by the pussy video of Trump appeared in media, Bill Pruitt and an actor who had worked on The Apprentice both told media outlets that outtakes from The Apprentice are just as terrible. And a lot of that material reportedly includes him using uh, language, including ethnic slurs, um, misogynist language, sexually harassing women who worked for him, um, both in terms of staff on the show as well as contestants. Um, and so all of that, again, it, if we, if viewers had known that that was the real Donald Trump and not um, this sort of faux authority figure who has turned into an authoritarian figure, we would have been able to see what was coming. And I doubt that he would have had a platform to run in the first place. The 
but they didn't say, oh, we just won't release them. We don't want to. They said, no, we, we're not allowed to release the tapes because, um, because the tapes are owned by this production company. Well, Mark Burnett, when he was approached to release the tapes, said he couldn't release the tapes. And NBC was the one who had the legal uh, uh, responsibility or permission to, to could grant permission or not. And then it turns out Mark Burnett is the, is the owner of the production company that NBC is saying has the ability or not to release the tapes. So basically it's a giant pass the buck that ends up exactly where Burnett and NBC and Donald Trump wanted it to end up, which is keep the reality TV sausage making process a secret. Don't show anybody any raw footage. It would inevitably and irrevocably damage the image of supposed reality, supposed truth uh, of what The Apprentice had pretended that Donald Trump was. You compare the two classic books, 1984 by George Orwell and Brave New World by Aldous Huxley Mm -hmm. through the lens of the late NYU media studies professor Neil Postman. Mm -hmm. Both those books describe totalitarian worlds we could find ourselves in, but one of them struck Postman as more relevant to today and I think struck you that way too. Will you take us there? Sure, absolutely. Uh, Or... um Postman was writing about this in his 1985 classic book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, which still has a great deal to teach us, even though it does precede the internet and the impact of digital technology. Uh, And I think some of the things uh, that he projects are off. But in terms of the Orwell-Huxley comparison, here's what he wrote. He wrote, What Orwell feared were those who would ban books. What Huxley feared was that there would be no reason to ban a book for there would be no one who wanted to read one. Orwell feared those who would deprive us of information. Huxley feared those who would give us so much information that we would be reduced to passivity and egoism. Orwell feared that the truth would be concealed from us. Huxley feared that the truth would be drowned in a sea of irrelevance. Orwell feared that we would become a captive culture. Huxley feared that we would become a trivial culture, preoccupied with the equivalent of the feelies, the orgy-porgy, and the centrifugal bumble puppy. In 1984, Orwell added, people are controlled by inflicting pain. In Brave New World, they are controlled by inflicting pleasure. In short, Orwell feared that what we hate will ruin us, Huxley feared that what we love will ruin us. It was that last one that really stopped me short in my tracks when I was reading the book. In 1984, Orwell added, people are controlled by inflicting pain. In Brave New World, they're controlled by inflicting pleasure. And it's that that you say 
was the world that led us ineluctably to the election of Donald Trump. Absolutely. How could it be otherwise? I mean, Trump's campaign was an endless stream of comedy and melodrama, apocalypse and deliverance. It was incredibly entertaining, no matter what your politics were. To some, it was enthrallingly frank, I wrote. But uh, to others, ultimately, Trump's victory shattered reality. And it was much more than about a political outcome you didn't like or a president you didn't respect or even feared. If you live long enough, you're bound to have those experiences many times over your life. And you can feel a kind of dread. But what I was hearing in our Eastern elite bubble, in our cohort, and basically from cities all around the country, because it seems to be a, a city country thing, even more than a policy or a party thing, was that this sense of dread was more extreme, more chilling, more disabling, because it got to the core of our beliefs of how the world worked. And so I decided to, you know, take a deep dive into trying to figure out exactly how do we construct the worlds we live in? Why do we construct those worlds? Is it even possible to see past the boundaries of our own infinite bubbles. And I honestly think it isn't like there are two in this country. I think there are as many bubbles as there are individuals. They are bespoke. They are handcrafted. And we craft them for a reason. And we've been doing it for as long as we've existed. Another reference from the book. You quote the English poet John Milton, most famous for Paradise Lost, in a polemic against censorship mm -hmm. to the British government in the 1700s that inspired Thomas Jefferson. Mm -hmm. But I think you now find it naive. Right. Yeah. Well, here's the thing, is that what Milton said and what Jefferson later echoed was that if you place truth in a battle with falsehood, truth will inevitably, will always win. Milton believed that the people fundamentally grew wise with exposure to information. And Jefferson certainly believed this. Now, not all the founding fathers did. Madison didn't really believe it. Hamilton certainly didn't. And uh, the fact is that we know now that information does not lead to a higher truth. We create our worlds from the seen and the unseen. The seen are the facts, but until they are marinated in our traditions and our values, until we place them into a narrative context that we agree with, all of those things, and we leave out the ones that don't fit, uh, information alone won't do it. Fact-checking alone won't stop Trump. The only way to stop Trump if you want to stop Trump, is to make sure that those facts can fit into the lives of people who don't agree with you. In other words, you have to place them in a context, you have to explain their relevance, and then you have to wait. Yes, you have to wait for the world to bear you out. But if the argument 
in the 1700s that inspired Jefferson, Jefferson and others was that uh, censorship is bad because more information leads to good political decision making. Mm-hmm. Well, we certainly have more information in today's world than we've ever had before, mm-hmm. and there is no shortage of bad political decision making. But are you suggesting that some of the very best values of our nation, because the First Amendment was based on this idea, are based on utopian wishful thinking <laughs> and are bound to fail us? Well, what are values? Values are our better angels. They don't necessarily reflect what's in the real world. But we have to understand that these are not mechanical principles. This is not physics. This is philosophy. We want to believe that information will make us better people, a more informed electorate, as Jefferson would say. But many people, including uh, John Adams, and, and I quote him towards the end of the book, He says, remember, democracy never lasts long. It soon wastes, exhausts, and murders itself. The passions are the same in all men under all forms of simple government, and when when unchecked, produce the same effects of fraud, violence, and cruelty. Individuals have conquered themselves, nations, and large bodies of men never. In other words, we believe it is a liberal principle. It is one of our foundational beliefs that Democracy is the best system and democracy works. And what did we see in this election? A sense that it didn't work, that something went wrong. And I examined the role of the press. I examined the masterful use of alternate forms of information and actually casting doubt on the very possibility of knowing reality. I mean, when Trump says that All of the organs of accountability, whether it's the Congressional Budget Office or the media, are simply other special interest groups with their own agenda and that you don't believe them, you shouldn't believe them, you don't have to believe them. You can pick who you want to believe based on absolutely nothing more than your inclination because the truth cannot be known The truth, if you support me, is what I say it is today, and whatever I say it is tomorrow, support me too, because I've made you some promises, and that's our deal, right? And so and so that's what we're confronted with. This is different from the Bush administration, which many people uh, threw their hands up at, because they were offering an alternate reality, but it was a consistent one and a stable one. Uh, it was Carl Rove who to- told the New York Times reporter Ron Suskind that you and the reality-based community have to understand that we're going to be throwing realities at you as we choose, and you're just going to have to deal with that. But the departure for Trump is that he is throwing at us the idea that there is no reality or that it's optional, just build your own. We just heard clips today starting with the broadcast quoting Tom Tolls on the damage to the foundations of truth the Trump crew is inflicting, the breach discussed the weaponization of fake news, counterspin derailed one columnist's quest for truth-committed journalism from the right, 
The majority report gave us the details of the Koch donor network's push to fund propaganda. On the media laid out the case for why it's important to break out of one's own tunnel vision. Primary concerns explained the nuts and bolts of how Bannon and Breitbart News hacked the mainstream media. Propaganda discussed how The Apprentice was 10 years of propaganda that shaped Trump's image into something completely at odds with reality. And finally, we just heard on the media explain why we should all be going back and reading Brave New World rather than 1984. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now we'll hear from you. My name is Isaac. I'm in Valencia, California. I'm calling about the issue of the First Amendment and the Second Amendment. Go to the text. Why do not people go to the text every time a question comes up? It is simple as can be. The First Amendment starts, Congress shall make no law. Congress shall make no law. The Second Amendment begins a well-regulated militia. A well-regulated militia. The very basis of the Second Amendment are regulations. The very basis of the first is no law abridging, okay? So freedom of speech cannot be abridged, and the right to bear arms is well-regulated and must be well-regulated. And the fools who have claimed that their their invincible right to bear arms is uh, trumps everything is absolutely ignoring the first and most important part of the Second Amendment. Regulations must be in place. Thank you. Hello, Jay. This is V from. Central New York, right outside of Syracuse, and um, I was just listening to episode 1127. May I first say thank you for um, deciding to number them. Uh, it has been much more easier to keep track of them since you've done that. But besides the material that was included, your description actually really caught my attention. I didn't read it the first time. I started listening to the the episode, but I uh, went back and I was reading it. And um, there was a comment that you made in it, which I wanted to kind of elaborate on. Um, You called, you said that this may be the violent death throes of white supremacy. And as a black male who has studied Dr. King, um... It's quite interesting. In the early 60s, Dr. King was warning moderates. Uh, I often say moderates are um, rebranded as progressives today. But he was warning moderates who were saying, you know, this is the death throes of Jim Crow. This is the death throes of uh, that racist system of the South. He was warning them. And I think the last time there's um, a record of him warning them is about 64 when he said, look, guys, this Jim Crow and racism often looks like it's dying, but it has a strange ability to resurrect itself at a moment's notice. History shows me, at least, that white supremacy, racism, transforms itself. It only 
appears to die, but it only it, but it actually changes form and reemerges, waiting for a appropriate time to come forward and attack again. You have recently completed a couple of episodes on fascism, and there is a black psychiatrist who is now deceased who actually went to Germany in the 1950s, I believe, it might have been the early 60s, and did extensive work over there um, on the rise of fascism. And she commented when she returned back to the United States, looking at the um, plight of the Jews, looking at what happened to the Jews, looking at what was happening to black people, she said to her, it appeared that fascism was nothing more than racism organized. And this frightened her because there is a historical connection between the rise of lynching, the rise of increased hatred towards black people, and the rise of violence against black people and economic disorder. When whites felt that their economic foundation was in jeopardy, they became increasingly hostile and violent towards black people people and they leaned on heavily white supremacist thought and white supremacist fantasy this is something that needs to be considered by progressives because we are in a time period where nobody disagrees that the economy is in terrible terrible shape and it is likely with the federal reserve starting to increase interest rates and signaling that they are not going to stop doing that once Trump appoints a replacement for Yellen, which should be happening in the next six quarters. With that occurring, and with what the Federal Reserve is already saying will happen, which is going to be a increasingly, um, it'll look like the economy is getting better, but indeed it's likely on the back end it'll dip more. White supremacy is probably going to increasingly become part of our social fabric again. Just some food for thought. Thank you for the great work that you're doing. Peace to you and all the listeners. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. And I am really glad that we heard from V from New York because he was absolutely right to call me out. Uh, I, I agree with everything he said, and I disagree with my own statement that he was referring to. So he, he was talking about not something that was in the show itself, but just in the written description of the show, where I said, you know, sort of in a speculative uh, frame, could this be the violent death throes of white supremacy? And I don't even believe that, not for a second. And the best I can think of when I wrote that, like what could I have possibly meant is, is this sort of the end of the current iteration of white supremacy? And let me explain. I mean, V definitely uh, got into this a little bit already, but I've read Michelle Alexander. I know the, the new Jim Crow and the whole theory about the evolution of oppression. So I'll just expand on that a bit. So the, the theory goes, and it's not even much of a theory because you can just 
look through history and watch it play out, is that white supremacy has evolved time after time after time through the history of this country. Uh, so you start with slavery. That's the big obvious one. From there, you move, you know, maybe there's a little transition period right after the Civil War before it went into full-blown Jim Crow mode. But, you know, then we head into Jim Crow and then we get a little bit of that uh, separate but equal talk. And then we have civil rights movement, which then leads into, you know, okay, so uh, you know, as he was just, uh, as V was just saying, Martin Luther King saying, you know, this is the death throes of Jim Crow and, and that old system. But then that was supplanted by mass incarceration. So when I asked, is this the violent death throes of white supremacy, I didn't even mean it. I don't know what made me say that. Uh, if I were to go back and write it again, I would say something like, is this the violent death throes of our current iteration of white supremacy? Because, you know, I, I kind of do think that we are at the tail end of the mass, mass incarceration iteration of white supremacy. To explain, there's actually murmurings of bipartisan support for sentencing reform, prison reform, that sort of stuff. And with movements like Black Lives Matter being resurgent and powerful, there is just this bubbling of recognition that things are still really, really screwed up and that we need fundamental change. And these systems only maintain their stability for as long as they can convince the vast majority of the population that they are just. So with slavery, the vast majority of the population was convinced that black people were not really human and therefore could be treated as something fundamentally different than human. And we evolved from there to, okay, maybe they're human, but they are a fundamentally different kind of human, and we are really better off if we keep ourselves separate from them. And that evolved into, you know, they're not as smart as us or, the, you know, all kinds of different iterations all through the separate but equal and, and civil rights movement eras. And now what we've got to is, okay, they are human, and let's recognize that they're equal, but let's assume that they have exactly equal chances as everyone else in this system because there aren't technically laws that specifically single out people of color to be discriminated against. And yet the system puts more black people in jail, more Latino people in jail. So since our system is believed to not be discriminatory anymore, then it must just be personal failing. And so they must just be criminals. So that's the current iteration we're at right now. But I think that frame is breaking so, you know, you get things like President Obama as one indicator of a fundamental change in our perception of race in this country. You get things like Black Lives Matter demanding that we focus on this issue and more people actually look at it and realize, oh, maybe there's something wrong here. And bit by bit, year after year, more and more people come to the realization that the system is unjust and that destabilizes the entire system. Now, that doesn't mean it's going to go away, as, as V and I agree. It means it's about to evolve. 
And I, no one knows how it's going to evolve next. No one knows, you know, what iteration comes next. But that is the most likely outcome. And, and the one last thing I want to touch on with this is one of the most fascinating aspects of Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow, is this incredibly, incredibly nuanced point that has to be made that says that any of these systems of oppression must actually hurt some small percentage of the people who it is built to protect in order to maintain the structure of the system. And it goes back to that idea of the vast majority of people thinking the system is just. Because imagine a system in which we have a mass incarceration on the scale that we have today, but 100% of the people in jail were people of color. It would be so obvious that it was unjust. No one could possibly imagine that that's actually just the natural breakdown of criminality in our society. And so it would be, it would be too obvious and it would be thought of as unjust by the vast majority of people right away. And it would be dismantled because of that. So just to reiterate, I don't think, so just to reiterate, I don't think white supremacy is going away anytime soon. What I do think, though, is that our current system is destabilizing and it is about to crumble. Maybe in a couple of years, maybe in, you know, a decade. I don't know, but it, it seems like the foundations are shifting under our feet and it's about to go. Uh, so, you know, I would, I would hope that's the case. I am also nervous about what comes next and am trying to be vigilant about what may come next and be ready to fight whatever injustice is in store for us there. So if you have thoughts on this or anything else, keep the comments coming in. The number again, 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size on patreon.com. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on iTunes and Facebook to help others find the show. You can also help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook. Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we're putting out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. See you